Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources that we discuss on the show are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. I'd also like to take a second to ask our listeners who haven't done so, if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting app. It's somewhat annoying, but it's a real fact of the podcasting ecosystem that lots of good ratings drives visibility on the podcast apps, which helps us build our audience. Our audience helps us continue to attract the amazingly great guests that we've had on the show. So please take a minute when you're done listening today and give us a five-star rating. Thanks. Today's guest is Brad Kirshner. Brad is a school leader and educational theorist. He's currently head of the early school at Carolina Friends School in Durham, North Carolina, not too far from here, about a four-hour drive. He earned an MA in philosophy of religions at the University of Chicago and a PhD in education at Boston College. His recent writings and presentations have addressed topics such as complex systems, mindfulness, meditation, human development, integral theory, racism, and the use and misuse of technology. You can follow him at at Brad Kirshner, K-E-R-S-H-N-E-R, on Twitter. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Jim. Wonderful to be here with you. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting chat. Today, we're mostly going to be talking from his relatively new book, Understanding Educational Complexity, Integrating Practices and Perspectives for 21st Century Leadership. As people who listen to my podcast know, that title manages to hit three of my favorite topics, complexity, education, and leadership. We've had shows on all three of those topics. It'll be an interesting conversation to blend all three of them together. So you start out early in the book and say there's complexity everywhere. What does complexity mean to you? Let's not start out within the educational context, but more generally, when you say complexity, what do you mean? Yeah. So I think, first off, it starts with an understanding of interdependence, right? So we're thinking about how things are interconnected and how when you have an impact in one area of a system, it's going to have reverberating effects, often in nonlinear and unpredictable ways. So understanding systems in, in one simple sense means sort of understanding the ways in which we can predict and understand those reverberating effects um, and the ways in which we can't and have to sort of be open. And there's a, there's a sense in which we can understand complex adaptive systems and understand schools as complex adaptive systems. But there's a huge shift in terms of the um, sort of physics level understanding of complex systems, and then the way that it's applied in educational contexts. So I'm not sure if you want to really get into those differences or, you know, I'm, I'm addressing it mostly from the lens of there is a lot of literature coming out now sort of trying to use the lens of complex adaptive systems to understand social systems and human systems. Um, and I know that you're coming some, from probably more of a uh, maybe physics and hard science background. So there's definitely some, some uh, probably some tensions and some conversation to have around the differences between sort of hard systems thinking and soft systems thinking. And I get into that a little bit in the book, but, but my focus is more on really understanding um, complexity as a contrast to linear thinking is, is also one way of thinking about it. Because in, in the context of schools, the, the lens of complexity can be helpful to the extent that it helps us to actually 
um, see how certain approaches to education and education reform are not accounting for enough and not really seeing the interconnectedness and the effects that certain reforms are going to have and taking a too linear approach to change. Yeah, what you call soft systems or soft complexity thinking is something I'm very familiar with and I actually promote. And I do make a similar distinction, which is, yes, we have a science of complexity of the sort that our scientists do at the Santa Fe Institute. Got a lot of equations, agent-based models, you know, all kinds of hard-nosed stuff in there. But one can take the ideas, what I call the metaphors of complexity, and apply them to all kinds of things in real life. I first started applying complexity metaphors in the business world in the late 90s and found that they were very useful. In fact, we have a business network that's associated with the Santa Fe Institute. And one of the main things we do is try to you know, educate people on what you would call soft complexity or what I would call the metaphors of complexity. And so you have a lens to look at the world in really in a fundamentally different way once you get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things I try to pull out in the book is I try to do a, a review of some of that literature in terms of how understanding um, organizations as complex systems and how understanding that sort of soft systems lens, how that's helpful for leadership. But I also try to make the point that there's also this distinction between thinking of systems as a way to describe reality, like as though it's objective you know, like, you know, these are systems out there and we can understand organizations as systems. We can understand schools as systems. We can understand cities as systems. But also the implication of that on the perspective taker and the thinker and the leader, right? And, and, and what does it mean to have a complex systems view? And what does it mean to really understand what those capacities and skills and developmental requirements are for people to be able to take complex systems views and, and then to what extent is, is, is that capacity to even see things in terms of systems really essential and important for leadership? Yep. And what kind of leadership is it important for, right? And you go into that. Again, all topics I'm very interested in. So with respect to education, education lives in a context. You can't look at education as a black box sitting there by itself. And you mentioned that. In fact, you referenced the fact that it is part and parcel of our late stage civilization here in what you call the metacrisis. Could you say a little bit more about that, kind of the context for which one must consider when looking at education? Yeah. Well, in a sense, that's really what the whole book is about, is trying to sort of peel back the layers of context and to really help us think about what are all of the relevant and salient factors that we have to account for if we're going to try to understand education. And part of the premise of the book is that, you know, starting off from the lens of an educational researcher and spending time in schools and having certain theories to apply to understand what's happening in schools, part of the conclusion I came to and that I wanted to share was that you really can't understand what's happening in a school, even if you're embedded there and you're there for a year there's the concrete context of the particular school, right? So there's so many particulars in each school, understanding the people, understanding what the, what the culture and the demographics and the economics of that particular context are. But you also can't even understand what's happening in any particular school context if you also don't understand larger sort of macroscopic forces that are at play in terms of what are the, what are the dominant discourses and ways of thinking that have shaped policy, right? And how have those policies impacted that school district over the last 20 years, right? And how is that trickling down into schools? What, what are the 
What are the dominant ways of thinking in that particular context? What are the dominant ways of thinking that have shaped policy? And also a key lens for understanding education is psychological development. So that's one thing I want to bring in as well, is you can't really understand an educational leader if you don't really understand how they're thinking and making sense and making meaning of their work and in, and even of what education is all about. So there's the sort of social context, there's the cultural and like sense-making context, both small scale and large scale that sort of impacts the school. And then there's the individuals in the school, in particular the leadership and the teachers and sort of how to understand their thinking, right? So this is why integral theory is so important. It's actually one way of actually taking a step back and looking at what are the most important and relevant features of context, of, of any educational context, that can help us understand what's going on and how do we ensure that we're not taking an overly partial view of any particular system or context? What are the sort of basic fundamental touchstones that we need to check in with, right? And I, I personally feel like integral theory is helpful in that way because it sort of helps you get a sense of, you know, covering your bases and not being overly reductive or collapsing your interpretation to any particular aspect like, oh, let's make it all about culture or let's make it all about policy or let's make it all about leadership. Yep, absolutely. We'll talk about integral theory here in just a second. And of course, the stakes here are high. You know, our country has been complaining about its educational system and ratcheting more and more and more and more money into it since at least the 70s. I think Gerald Ford was the first one I recall who said, you know, if Somebody had imposed this kind of educational system on our country. We would consider it an act of war, right? I think he actually said that. And yet, for all of our efforts and all of our money, it's not clear that our school systems, at least our public school systems, have gotten better. In fact, you know, it's pretty much a commonplace, and you allude to it, that educational reforms continue to fail, at least more often than not. Yeah, yeah, that's also part of what I'm trying to explain in the book to give people a sort of philosophical and historical context on why that is, right? In this this weird and interesting paradox where we can um, say we care so much about education and pour so much money into it, and yet we don't see the kind of results we want, and yet fundamentally, even how we're conceiving of what results are is part of the problem, right? Like we like. The way that we even think about educational success is part of the problem that is it creates a sort of feedback loop on ensuring that we're not actually getting the kind of school system that we really want for our children, partly because we're focused on the wrong things and we're thinking about it in ways that are not complex enough and are in some ways anachronistic. Absolutely. It's very similar to the way we think about things in our game B space. Try to think about things the same way in multidimensional, nonlinear, emergent kinds of contexts. But before we get into that, let's talk about integral theory just a little. Late in the podcast, we'll get into it pretty deeply. And I will confess, I'm not any great expert in it. I did read one short book on it called The Brief Theory of Everything, I believe it's called on integral theory. And I've been corresponding with a guy named Rob Smith, who's somebody in the integral world. And he's been trying to arrange Ken Wilbur to come on the podcast, but for various reasons, it's been difficult. I just got an email from him not too long ago saying, eh, it won't be this month. So, <laughs> so I'm very interested in the area though. I don't know a tremendous amount. So why don't you give us a very high level view of what integral theory is? And I will mention the one part I have actually found already is useful in my own life are the so-called four quadrants. 
Yeah, and that's sort of where I start in the book. I mean, we could definitely talk a lot about integral theory, but I think the four quadrants is a good place to start. And I even already alluded to them a little bit, just in terms of when you're thinking about the context for interpretation and understanding something as complex as education, it's good to sort of have a sense of not reducing that complexity to just one area. So for instance, in integral theory, we're thinking of reality in terms of insides and outsides and individuals and collectives, right? So in terms of individuals, we have to think about individual humans and their psychology, their development, their sense-making, right? That's sort of the interior of the individual. Um, And then, you know, the exterior of the individual would be their behavior. How are individuals acting in the world and why? And then collectively, we have to understand culture. So collective meaning-making, the sort of ideologies and frameworks and cultural codes that we use to make sense of the world and the way that our relationships are constituted and the sort of quality and health of those relationships and that that collective meaning-making. And then the external and collective sense is just having an understanding of technology, social structure, like how are the large macroscopic forces that I was referring to in terms of policy and economics and technology and demographics and all like how we live and how our living is structured in the world. All of these things interrelate to create our individual and shared realities, right? So So when we look at a school, we want to understand the culture, right? We want to understand how people are understanding and making sense of the world. We want to understand the objective sort of systems and infrastructure and technology and how that's influencing life at the school. And when we think about the individuals in the school, we want to think about, okay, how are they acting and why? And also how are they making sense of the world? So that's when we get into the importance of developmental psychology when we're looking at the interior of individuals. So those are the sort of four touchstones. You can think of it as behavior, psychology, culture, and then systems. Very good. So today we're going to talk in some depth about your experiences observing two schools and their two principals. Tell us a little bit how you got to know them and how you got involved in that study. What was the purpose of the study? Yeah. So this grew out of my work as a doctoral student at Boston College. I was in that area. And I spent some time in a number of schools throughout the city. And it was part of a, a project where we were actually bringing school leaders from different sectors together. So I was working with principals from charter schools, district schools, and Catholic schools. And it was this ongoing leadership program where we brought principals from these three different sectors together. And we tried to have them work together. And we tried to help them develop leadership projects and give them ongoing coaching and support to help them improve their schools. Um, So I was embedded in these two schools for two full years, a little bit more than two years. So I was visiting them regularly. I was sitting in on meetings. I was sitting in classrooms. Um, I was, you know, doing lots of interviews with teachers and with the principals and working with a, a team of grad students and a professor. And the lens that we initially tried to bring to understand what was happening in these schools was connected to complex systems. So the professor I was working with was very interested in complexity theory and was having me read a bunch of, you know, books and articles related to complex systems written by educational theorists. So that was sort of the, the entry into the study. But as I, as I continued that work, I continued to have reflections on what was happening in those schools that I felt like were not actually adequately captured by the theoretical frames we were using. 
So that's what led me to really try to do a sort of meta reflection and bring in integral theory to really get at a more full explanation and understanding of what I was seeing at these schools. And I think you also use the lens of leadership, right? And leadership per se is not specifically a complexity science concept, though we do study networks of leaders and things of that sort using complexity. But I think you also drilled into the more or less traditional and also the new cutting edge literature on leadership, which I thought was interesting. One of the metaphors that looks like you did extract from your complexity reading is the idea of the attractor. You use the somewhat more formal language of the strange attractor. And I often just say basins of attraction. Say a little bit about what you mean by an attractor, a strange attractor, a basins of attraction, particularly in the cultural context of something like a educational system. Yeah, yeah. And that that context is important because, again, there are different sort of conversations or context within which these concepts and metaphors can be used. So getting away from this sort of um, hard science is strange attraction, which I do use some of that language and draw on some of that theory. In the context of schools and education, it really has to do with culture, right? So it, it, it's really, in the terms of integral theory, looking at that lower left quadrant and that quadrant of culture and understanding what are the animating beliefs and principles um, and shared ideas and in some ways the ideology that are kind of bringing people together and pulling people in and helping people make sense of the world. And part of leadership in that context um, and you see it especially in one of the schools where they really try to create very explicitly this framework of values and ideas, right? And this happens at a lot of schools where, you know, naming what your values are, having some sort of slogan. And it's like, these are the values, like this is who we are, right? This is what we believe in. And this is what we're trying to instill in our students. And we're going to repeat it a lot. And we're going to refer to it in different ways. And we're going to keep coming back to these same themes and values because that becomes an attractor for that community, right? So you're having the behavior and the sort of social system sort of organizing around these orienting principles that relate to particular themes and values. So for a school community, you know, highlighting sort of what is aligned with their vision and mission and what values do they really believe in, a lot of schools, that's a very influential and impactful thing that they're trying to do. And the idea is you're trying to pull the students and the staff toward these shared values to create a sense of cohesion, integrate an environment in the context where people are actually um, growing and learning and, and actually cultivating these positive qualities and values within their own, within their own lives and their own minds. Yeah, and that's really important stuff. We recently had on the show Sam Bowles, and we dug into his work on the social evolution of cooperation. And he shows pretty convincingly, using a complexity lens, that you need norms and you need policing of the norms, and you may even need meta-policing of the norms if you're likely to see very much cooperative behavior emerge in human cultures. And so, yeah, I think it's a pretty decent argument that things like, you know, norms and such act as force fields to help create the nature of the basin that one is in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the other point, and this involves some of my own work in the quasi-political sphere, social-political, is moving from one basin to another is not easy. One of the metaphors I use is if you want to understand what these basins is, think of a metal salad bowl with a marble in it, Right. And the salad bowl is the kind of possible phase space of ways that our current society could be and yet still remain our society or our educational system that's recognizable as continuous with its historical predecessor. 
If you move the bowl around, the marble starts to roll around, go up the side a little bit, etc. If you slam the bowl hard into the edge of a table, hit it hard enough, the marble will go flying out and will land somewhere else, usually in another basin. In fact, I have a very interesting paper, at least I think it's interesting, called In Search of the Fifth Attractor, where I lay out the concept of social, political, economic attractors at the society level and use some pretty pictures and some simple metaphors to bring this idea across. People might want to look there if they want to get a perhaps more vivid view on this concept of basins of attraction and how they're relatively resistant to change. But once you give enough force onto them, big change can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And those those reflections are relevant for sure in a school context when when school leadership is thinking about cultural change. But it also, in a, in a school context or really any human context, it also begs the question of, you know, what is the appropriateness and sort of right fit of a particular proposed attractor? Like, you know, that, that new basin that you're trying to lead people toward, it's very hard, but you also have to make sure that it's actually uh, meaningful and relevant and appropriate. And part of the reflection um, that I was doing in these schools is really in some ways critiquing and interrogating what the what the animating values and principles were that were actually driving change at these schools. Because part of the problem that we're having uh, in public education particularly is that there's a lot of top-down push and pressure to create change. And even if, you know, people have read some good books and can use the language of complex systems and the language of cultural change, and it all sounds like it's for the good, actually when the rubber meets the road and in the actual experiential, you know, embodied, like felt sense of being in that school, um, it, 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 oftentimes it just doesn't feel quite right. And it doesn't feel like, you know, the changes that administrators are pushing for are really necessarily aligned with the education and the development of the children in the building. They're also, they're, they're, they're often influenced and animated by external factors um, such as pressure to increase standardized test scores. Let's put that one on the table. I mean, that's one of the great fucked up force fields that's out there today. My friend Zach Stein has been on the show three times. He's coming back for a fourth time next month. And he and I have talked about that quite a lot. How, yeah, you can make the school better at cranking out test scores if that's your goal, but is that a reasonable goal? Yeah, no, it, it's a big part of the conversation. And yeah, Zach, Zach is a great theorist and, and also a good friend. And I've had a chance to talk to him about a lot of this stuff as well. And we're very much on the same page in terms of understanding the dynamics of what's wrong with, with the forces that are animating um, change and reform in, in education. And it was interesting. I mean, I admired the fact that you we were able to navigate at both levels. You know, at times you talked about these big picture issues, but other times you drove it down to the level mostly of what a principal actually has to deal with. I mean, they're heavily constrained. And it was good that you didn't stick only in what would be utopia, but rather dealt with, you know, what do they actually have to deal with? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, that's part of what I'm hoping the value of, of the text is, is that, you know, it's, it's relatively, um, easy to just think about how we want things to be or to criticize from the outside or to come up with some ideal system, but to actually be working in schools with real people and to be actually be reflecting in real time with people on what they're doing and why, and then to really utilize these, these very abstract frames like integral theory, but use them to actually assess, you know, these sort of qualitative research methods that I used 
embedded in these schools for me was a uh, it's work that I've not seen done very very often. So I really was trying to bring the concrete and the theoretical together. Yep. The other thing I like from a perspective, though, unfortunately, in the real world of schools, there's not as much room for this as we might like, is the concept of turbulence and perturbation. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So that was one of the one of the key ideas with which I looked at what's happening in schools and really my intention in using those ideas, which is just really getting a sense of how are you causing disequilibrium for people in schools? Like when you bring in change, if you have some big idea, you have some mandate or you have some reform, you're going to cause disequilibrium for, for the individuals in that system, right? And there's a way in which that's necessary and important because you can't actually enact or foster growth and change if you don't first kind of break loose the places that people are kind of stuck, right? So disequilibrium can be good and you have to have some sense of disequilibrium to enact and foster change, but there are limits within and ranges within which that's healthy and helpful, right? So part of the problem of education reform is, is a lack of sensitivity to the extent to which we are perturbing systems and that we are creating disequilibrium. And if you get too much disequilibrium, you'll, you'll get resistance from people, right? So if, for instance, say you come in as a new principal and you got a bunch of big ideas and you want to create all this change, but if you push too hard, you don't have trust, you don't have good relationships, right? The lower left quadrant of culture really isn't healthy and people don't even know you and they don't believe in you and you don't have that shared alignment in some sort of cultural attractor where it's like you're on the same page and you're resonating on the same frequency. If you don't have all that in, in your cultural context, that disequilibrium is going to lead to resistance and, and it's going to lead to failure of, of, of your reform effort, right? So it's all about sensitivity and, and awareness of how people are responding and sort of that gentle nudge, but not going too far. Well, and of course, this is the art of it. And this is why I was appreciative of the fact that you didn't keep all in complexity theory, but also looked at actual leadership as it is. You know, I was a person who had a pretty long and interesting business career. And, you know, I managed as many as 5,000 people at one point and developed my own theories of leadership. And, you know, you hit on some of those important things. And as we'll talk about later, when we go to the two examples of the two schools, one principal decided that their system could take a bigger shock than the other and proceeded accordingly. And that's something that complexity science is not going to tell you, right? That's a skill of leadership to assess what is possible in a given context and to push as hard as you can in a given context, but no harder. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's so much to integrate in terms of ideas from leadership, and there's so many different adjectives that you can use for leadership, right? There's like, there's this leadership, there's that leadership, but really some sense of fusion leadership is, is, is sort of where I land because it really is about integrating all these different capacities and skills that you have to have as a leader and taking a complex systems lens and then reflecting on how developmental capacities influence leadership, which is a lens that you don't often see in leadership literature, but I think is a direction we need to go more if we're really going to make sense of an individual's ability to actually enact some sort of meaningful and helpful fusion or integration of all the different skills and capacities that it takes to be a good leader. 
Yeah, we'll get into that very interesting psychological development part a little bit later. You mentioned fusion, which is great. Back in my day, people would say, you know, and this was, you know, business gurus running loose every which way, selling their formulas. And they'd say, hey, Mr. Rudd, you've been pretty successful as a business leader at every scale from small startup to public company CEO. What style is your leadership? And I just made up a name just for the hell of it. I said, macho eclectic. <laughs> It you know, gave that same sense that it's got to be a fusion of different things, that believing that one single perspective is going to give you the answer of how to be a leader ain't going to do it. And in those olden days, I could sort of highlight the fact that I'm a bit of a redneck, a bit of a table pounder. And so threw the two together and called it macho eclectic. <laughs> I should mention one other person who I've learned a fair amount about this kind of stuff from, who's a colleague of Zach's, and that's Theo Dawson. Had some conversations with her from time to time. Very interesting thinker in this field. If you don't know her, it'd be it'd be worth getting to know her. Yeah, I mentioned Lectica uh, toward toward the end of the book, and I use I use Lectica as an example of a place that people should look and where we should keep continuing to do future research in terms of understanding human development. You know, and Zach and Theo started Lectica um, some time ago. So yeah, I'm I am very familiar with that work, and it's really really good stuff. Really, indeed. A couple of things, then we'll turn to the actual experiences. Where we'll go with that next. One of the things that seems to follow from this idea of turbulence and perturbation is what I like to call a experimental mindset, but with epistemic modesty, which means that, and it's kind of big words, what does it really mean? It means that in high-order complex systems, we can't really predict how they'll unfold, particularly if we start making changes, we start to perturb them. But we don't have any other way to find out because there really isn't a principled theoretical way to predict the unfolding of a higher order complex system. So we have to experiment. The epistemic modesty part is that our ability to foresee the consequences of our actions are sufficiently bad that we would be wise to make relatively small experiments at any one time and ones that are relatively unlikely to have disastrous outcomes. Yeah, yeah, that's meaningful. And I think in the educational context, where that strikes home is in the contrast to how educational reform is typically done, where again, you typically have some sort of top-down reform idea of what needs to happen, and you have certain goals that need to be met, and then you're all about manipulating the process of whatever's happening in the school to achieve those quantitative outcomes. And it's a very linear way of thinking, and it's a very set and rigid way of thinking in terms of, look, this is where we need to go. This is what we need to do. And our job as administrators is to get teachers to do it and to cause the disequilibrium to make that change, right? And that's what we call ed reform in some ways. And what you're pointing to is, yeah, much more this complexity way of thinking, which is very different from the beginning because you start from a place of not knowing. And then that enables you to actually also shift the way that relationships unfold, right? Because when you're when you're going to have epistemic humility and when you're interested in actually experimenting and tinkering and figuring things out together, it opens up a whole range of possibilities for how to engage the other people in that process, right? Because if it's genuinely open, then you can be open to decentralized leadership. You can be open to sharing leadership. You can be open to other people's ideas and other people coming up with ideas that you and the people above you wouldn't have thought of. And in general, having the people closest to the work you know, come up with the ideas is a really important principle too. So having teachers and even students leading the change and generating the ideas and responding to their particular concrete contexts is so important. And having leadership 
that can envision that and see how to facilitate that is so crucial. And it's really not, um, it's definitely not the norm in, in most schools. Yeah, it's unfortunately contrary to the whole command and control top-down tendencies of bureaucratic organizations, frankly. Now, another thing before we go on, both of the two principals that you observed were participants in what you called the School Leadership Academy. And you referenced the School Leadership Academy a couple of times and alluded to some of the things that were done there, but you didn't really go into it in much detail. Could you tell us a little bit more about the School Leadership Academy? I think it's a euphemism. That's not its actual name, but I'll limit what I'll say there because that could have been a whole nother book. And, and part of the part of my colleagues, were, were, we were, were thinking about maybe writing some more about just the Leadership Academy. And there's a lot of complexity just in unpacking the dynamics of this academy. And so just to say, like, just briefly, a really high level, you know, my university got a huge grant um, from an organization that typically is involved in business. And the grant is to create a leadership organization to prepare principles, but using a lot of ideas from business management, right? So some of these ideas of leadership and, and management and complex systems were connected to this range of literature and experience related to management in the business world. And I'd say that there were some good things that came out of that, and it was a great project to be a part of. And I was, I was in at the ground level um, as a grad student, sort of helping to develop the program and putting together workshops for these principles um, and, and then doing the research. But there's also a sort of shadow side or a problematic side of that whole situation in that it's part of this bigger dynamic in public education where actually um, it, it, it largely ties into this sort of linear top-down control orientation and thinking that we can take sort of principles from business management and then and then just take them and teach principles basically to be managers and have them run their schools kind of like a business is actually it gets complicated because there are some problems with that and in some ways what i saw was actually that orientation of wanting to run a school like a business and wanting principles to be like managers in some ways it actually takes the the pedagogical and teacherly authority away from that role of the principal and it actually created layers of resentment and frustration from teachers who sort of felt like the culture of their school was changing when they get a principal who actually doesn't have a lot of teaching experience, really doesn't know what they're talking about in terms of education. And they are sort of a ladder climber who just, you know, is wanting to be successful and wanting to, to manage people and make more money. Not just talking about the two schools I worked at, but just across the board. That's a dynamic that's playing out. So. I had I had uh, trepidation in terms of really getting into sort of the messiness of that because in some ways it was this program that had a lot of money and was trying to help and I was able to learn a lot from that process but at the same time I had very mixed feelings about it because I could see sort of you know taking a step back and seeing where the money was coming from and how it was being used that I actually felt like some of the problems of public education were being reinforced and exacerbated by trying to push principals to sort of see their schools as businesses to manage because the obvious metaphor there or the obvious analog there is that instead of making money, we're trying to actually maximize the sort of quantified output of test scores, right? So it's like whether the student is the output or the test scores are the output, it, it really lends itself to this sort of linear 
and reductive approach to education, which is a big part of the problem. Yeah. And in fact, in my circles, we refer to the unreformed public school education system as the sausage factory, right? <laughs> which resonates very much with your point of view that if you know you think about it as a standardized product with weights and measures, i.e. test scores, it starts to look a hell of a lot like a sausage factory. Who the hell wants to spend 12 years in a sausage factory? Frankly, probably better off working with your crusty old uncle who's an unreformed alcoholic and bricklayer, right? You probably learn more than you would go into the sausage factory for 12 years. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot, and, and that's and that's the complexity of understanding all that's going into the sausage, right? There, there's a lot to, to unpack. Yeah, and there's one of the things I've found in my own reading of the literature on leadership, some non-traditional sources, including indigenous cultures. How do they do leadership? And again, it did sound like your SLA did not understand this, or it maybe had some sense of it, but they weren't really strong on it. And that's the difference between position-based leadership and role-based leadership. You know, position-based leadership is, I am the principal, I am the boss, right? Well, role-based leadership would be, hey, we got to organize a bake sale. Let's get Veronica to organize the bake sale because she's the best person for doing bake sales, right? And to apply that more widely, though, and into more mission-critical components, because maybe the principal isn't the right person to lead, you know, the instructional development of the other teachers, for instance, and getting away from position-based leadership, moving more towards role-based leadership strikes me as something that we really have something to learn from pre-modern people. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. And I'd say in, the, in these schools and in most schools, I'd say there's a lot of internal contradictions and tensions between some espoused philosophies and like the, the theories that people espouse and the theories in use, right? So it's like, what people say and, and what people sort of the the language that, that some of the principals were learning to use was definitely in tension with some of the behavior and some of the de facto ways of operating. Um, and a lot of that came from the pressures that they were under, right? Because ultimately, you know, in a lot of school contexts, I feel like people are being exposed to more and more sophisticated language and ideas around leadership. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if the incentivization is around maximizing quantified outputs and outcomes, then it's gonna it's gonna be the tail wagging the dog, no matter how um, no matter how well that dog can speak. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Another idea that you came close to, I didn't, I don't know if you quite brought it out explicitly, but I'm gonna float it for you and get your reaction. In the business related complexity metaphor field. There's a distinction. I think Dave Snowden is most known for this. It's the distinction between the complex and the complicated. And that something like, you know, a society with children that need to have intergenerational transfer of knowledge so that they can be successful in this high order complex society. It's a fundamentally complex problem. And yet our standard solution is to build complicated machinery, meaning non-organic, non-adaptive, very prescriptive, et cetera. And that complicated attempts to solve complex problems tend to be short-lived in terms of their success. Maybe the John Dewey style school system was kind of good in 1922, but probably not so good now, and inevitably becomes more and more costly as you have to patch and patch and patch the various failures of the complicated solution. You know, and the costs truly are staggering. You know, Washington, D.C., I looked it up, 2018, spent $22,000 per student. 
New York State, the whole state, rural, suburban, and urban, $24,000 per student. If one were to you know, scale that in a different way, a one-room schoolhouse with 20 students and maybe a married couple as teachers, you could easily afford to pay them $300,000 a year. So there's something you know, broken from compounded complicatedness trying to confront what is an inherently complex problem. Yeah, yeah. These distinctions run really deep and have so many iterations. Um, and there's so many ways to kind of come at these tensions and distinctions. So that's one, the complicated and complex. And to me, that's another way of really pointing toward the adaptive part of complex adaptive systems and understanding how, you know, humans in human systems, not only are people going to adapt and like, not only can you not treat a school or people as though they are complicated machines. And like, not only can we not reduce the reality of a, of a, of a human system to something like a materialist, you know, clockwork um, input output machine, like that's so deeply wrong, but also it sort of, you know, begs the question of, well, then if you're really going to look at it as a complex adaptive system and, and acknowledge and appreciate and honor the complexity of that situation as very distinct from just a merely complicated situation like technology, then you really have to get into the intricacies of, okay, well, what do we do to understand humans and that human interiority, right? Because this is another big point of integral theory is that when we just look at interiors and exteriors, there are many ways in which we have reduced the complexity of our social reality to focusing on, you know, quasi-objective exterior material reality. And we've either bracketed or denied, or repressed, or just failed to understand our individual and collective interiors, right? And there's no context where it's more important and more relevant than in education to really understand and appreciate and acknowledge and be responsive to and to be cultivating our our interiors, our thoughts, our beliefs, our, our ways of thinking and understanding and making meaning and sense. Um, so that's a big, big and important point. Yeah. And we come at it from a slightly different direction in the game B space, but I think a similar intent, which is that to actually build something that works in a complex domain, you need to co-evolve the people and the institutions. The institutions can only be as good as the capacity of the people, and the capacity of the people is drawn forward by good institutions if they have good institutions. And, you know, the attempt to just take the people as they are, period, and build institutions to minimize the harm that they do, and let's call that the complicated versus complex approach, that's not going to work. But only focusing on personal development isn't going to work very much better if you don't have institutions that aren't fulfilling to those people and draw them forward into the best of who they can be. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that that's why the just that simple four quadrant framework is so helpful because all that is really implied, right? The interior and the exterior and the individual and the collective, it all has to be implied and all has to be seen as interdependent all the time. Yeah, and of course, unfortunately, this kind of thinking is difficult to do in bureaucracies. The antithesis of a bureaucracy, essentially, is this kind of thinking. And, you know, it reminds me of a fairly famous Washington Post newspaper story. I grew up in the D.C. area, and so I followed the Washington Post, even I didn't live there. Know, it might have been 20 years ago. They did a deep dive in compared and contrast the Archdiocese of Washington's Catholic school system, which had like 40,000 students, and the Washington, D.C. school system, which had 50,000 students, similar in size. 
Turned out the Catholic main office bureaucracy consisted of 54 people, 54 people for 40,000 students, while the Washington, D.C. central office bureaucracy was 1,500 people, only slightly less than the number of teachers. So it was like, no wonder they can't get anything to work. This is the essence of a complicated organization where you layer levels upon levels upon levels of staff to put patches upon patches upon patches on broken, rigid systems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't get into this in the book, but actually what that makes me think of off the bat is like the work of Peter Turchin and just thinking about the larger cycles and economic forces that we're in and the increasing bureaucracy um, and sort of competition and job needs for so-called elites, right? Because more and more people are getting degrees, more and more people are getting graduate degrees and, you know, the economy just keeps growing. And I, I feel like that could potentially be one manifestation of an even much larger um, sort of macroeconomic manifestation, which is which is the increase of sort of elite and managerial bureaucratic type positions throughout society. And education is one sector which is sort of um, enacting that or or actualizing that. And it is an issue. I, I'd say it's an issue in higher ed too. That it's something that I've read a bit about in terms of the the bloated administrative staff and budgets of higher ed you know, and the amount, the percentage of money that's actually going directly to teachers and education um, is getting smaller and smaller. So that that's a huge, complicated systemic problem as well, just across many different sectors. And frankly, even if you just paid the people and told them to stay home, we'd probably be better off. Because if they're there at the central office, they send out diktats to the principals and the teachers and all this sort of stuff. So if we have the Peter Turchin overproduction of elites problem, make jobs, pay them, tell them to stay home, probably better off. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, and I, I think we're sort of heading toward a, again, I mean, this is one of the many factors that that people are sensing we're heading towards some sort of collapse or phase shift. And I, I think there's a renewed simplicity we need to find, right? And education is definitely a sector at which finding a new second simplicity where we can come back, almost like you mentioned, like the one-room schoolhouse, you know, a much smaller, simpler context of educational transmission um, is maybe really where we need to go. Yeah, I, our little very rural school system where I live, 200 kids in the K-12, to and I've more than once thought about suggesting that they close down the centralized sausage factory and offer $250,000, $300,000 a year to, for people to run 13 one-room schoolhouses, one for each grade, or even better, do them geographically where you have mixed grades. There were some very interesting things that came from those multi-age one-room schoolhouses back in the day. And for $300,000, you could get a hell of a good teacher, I guarantee you. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, even if we just think of private schools, you know, I mean, there is already this sort of principle in place. And if you have a separate, smaller community of mixed ages, whether it's elementary K or, or K-12, you know, we already have models of smaller scale, less top heavy, less bureaucratic organizations. Um, you know, the question is, how do we scale that? How do we make it equitable? How do we, how do we ensure every child's right to some sort of intelligent um, sort of collaborative educational community like that, you know, and then, and what are the, what are the accountability structures? What are the ways of even determining and defining educational value, right? So the, these are the, these are the complex questions that come into play. 
Yeah. I'm going to skip over a bunch of other stuff because we've been having such a good conversation. I want to leave some room for the developmental psychology stuff at the end. And we certainly want to talk about your experiences at the two schools. But this is from your book. You quoted somebody else, but being a semi-scholarly work, I know you quote them to say what you really want to think, more or less, right? The main point here is that we foster emergence by indirect efforts. We can only replicate the conditions that support innovation or reform, not the innovation or reform itself. That's actually a damn deep idea. Why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah, that, that's one of those key in- insights from complexity thinking and leadership. And again, it, it, I think it's most um, helpful and simply understood in contrast to the kind of um, overly linear thinking which which predominates, which is that say you you know you have some experience at some school or you have some successful school, and there's a strong push to want to replicate, right? So there's a really strong push in education to replicate certain kinds of schools, and this is especially true in the charter school field where you have these no excuses schools and it's very particular model and and way of approaching um, education and you end up seeing a lot of schools that are really copying and replicating each other in very cookie cutter fashion and in many ways it kind of takes it takes the life force and the creativity and the innovation and the collaboration and the emergence and the novelty out of the whole process of education And, and it really takes the power away again, from the people who are closest to the work, who should really be able to respond to the students who are in front of them. Um, you know, for me, the essence of that quote is really about creativity. And it's about actually leaving some openness and some sense for agency, so that teachers and educators can really have sovereignty and agency and be adaptive. And, and it's, it's honoring the fact that they are enacting a complex system, and they need to have agency um, and creativity in order to do that. And you can't over-determine people's behavior. You can't over-determine people's goals or behavior or process. You won't get the best out of them if you do. You'll get something out of them, but it won't be the best. Exactly. And often you'll get resistance, right? And you'll get people people not really give, not really putting their heart and soul into it, right? And there's nothing more tragic than taking the heart and soul of teaching away from educators, right? Like if, if we want to have good schools, we need to have teachers who are on fire with passion and are empowered to keep learning themselves and to be them best selves and to create the best schools that they can create where they are. Indeed. And, you know, I've had the experience of doing two business turnarounds and I've talked to people who've, you know, come in and done essentially educational turnarounds. And in both cases, what you get from, you know, generations of rigid but stupid leadership is passive aggressive resistance, right? And many people will tell you, you'll find that in this public school system. I can tell you for sure, you'll find it in kind of older, somewhat dysfunctional companies. And, you know, that's not the way to compete in the 21st century. Another quote was that we should be demanding the creation of ecologies of innovation supported by experiments in novelty. This is very similar to my own business leadership theories, which is we need to encourage an appropriate amount of risk taking. And one of the things that's really important there is you can't persecute honorable failure. You have to be willing to accept some level of failure, not catastrophic failure, but that we thought this through. It seemed like it should work. We'll give it a try at a reasonable scale. And it didn't work. We're not going to shoot the person as long as they did everything right. 
Yeah, yeah, it's really, really on that same theme and idea. And and coming back to that thing that you mentioned about, you know, passive aggressive resistance, another really key insight is to see how that manifests at both the level of teacher and student and at the level of administration and teacher, right? And that's one of the things I've really learned working in schools is you have to treat teachers and educators with respect and agency if you really want that respect and agency and creativity to actually be also enacted by the students, right? So if, if, if we don't give teachers any autonomy or agency or sovereignty, then they're going to have that passive aggressive resistance. And then that also is a way of describing the way that the students respond to those same educational environments. So whatever principles you want to instill um, and enliven in students, you have to also instill and enliven them in teachers, right? So there's a sort of fractal nature to these principles where you, if you want to see those principles manifest in students, it really has to be embodied all the way up and down the educational hierarchy. Indeed. One last kind of theory quote before we jump into the stories of the two schools. This is again from your book. Leading for emergence entails four crucial steps. Creative disequilibrium conditions, amplifying actions and experiments, nurture new seeds of change, drawing attention to promising possibilities, and stabilize feedback, institutionalize new structures, and increase feedback loops. Seems bang on. A great summary of what we've been talking about. Yeah, really on that same theme of of, um, experimentation, openness, creativity, empowering others, and being in those relational dynamics to really genuinely be open-minded and see what's going to happen and learn from it. Like to have a learning mindset as a school leader, right? Which is, oh my God, what a novel idea. Like the school leader <laughs> actually be trying to learn, like to be a learner, engaged in learning. Again, at every level, there's this fractal quality. You want children to learn? Okay, then how are the teachers learning? You want the teachers to learn? Okay, how are the administrators learning, right? It has to go all the way up and down. Indeed. All right. So that's, a, I think, a pretty good grounding in what you presented in the theory perspective. Let's move now to the actual stories. These are really intriguing stories, very nicely presented, well worth reading for the audience out there. The first school that you talked about was the Jeffrey Jackson School and its principal, Harold Weatherby, who was its third principal in three years. Why don't you tell us what you saw and what you learned there at Jeffrey Jackson School? Yeah, well, a big part of that story in context was that principal turnover. So he was the to have three principles in three years speaks to some pretty big systemic issues in terms of what's going on in terms of uh, relationships and trust building and the degree to which teachers, you know, really trust and believe a principal coming in. And this was a principal who actually did not have a lot of teaching experience. He actually was a business world transplant who kind of went into education from banking and had a very, he was a very likable guy really, really a great guy, but but didn't have deep knowledge or deep thinking about education or the educational process and was very much doing everything he could do to increase the test scores at this school. I mean, which is really what it came down to. And there was very explicit tensions between the teachers and this principal around how realistic it was and how actionable it was to basically manipulate and improve these quantified outcomes for students. And there was some interesting internal contradictions and tensions in what was happening there because, again, he was in some ways all about the ideas 
of empowerment and all about like he was getting these ideas from the leadership academy that had to do with distributed leadership and cultural change and creating this cultural tractor for a school and building up the school culture So all this positivity and all these positive words and ideas but ultimately it kind of fell flat and at the end of the day it was a really sort of um high stress environment where he and and one assistant that he had just really had to work really, really hard, just perpetually pushing teachers to try to do more and more and more and more. And you got a lot of resistance from a group of teachers who had been there a long time. This is a this is a big urban district where many teachers had been there a really long time. And, you know, their 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 jobs are safe. There's like no agency on the part of the principal to choose his staff. There's really no agency on the part of the teachers to choose their curriculum or even how they're going to teach or even what their goals for teaching are. Right. So you, you could just feel the sort of agency and sovereignty kind of sucked out of people in the system um, and a lot of tension, despite the fact that this leader was a very gregarious, positive, likable guy. Yep. That sounds like he started to do some things right. Like, for instance, he, he figured out that in culture change, communications is key. It looks like he invested quite a bit in communications techniques and infrastructure in his organization. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, he did. Again, lots of good things and good ideas. And he was really trying to build trust. I mean, he had a sense that it wasn't there. And he definitely had a sense of teacher resistance. Um, So I'd say, you know, well-intentioned overall. And lots of good things happened. But when it came down to it, the one X factor for him was increasing test scores. And changing teachers' teaching was the hardest thing to do. So what he ended up doing is creating a lot of changes sort of external to the classroom and sort of putting energy into making things look better, creating like new school slogans and a new school crest and doing like um, activities and like community events and bringing parents in. And that was all great. And like getting parents involved and having sort of building that trust in community. So some of that was really good, but fundamentally it didn't change the actual educational um, ideology or architecture or system, and also uh, as as true to the story of, of the sort of systemic problems, he didn't end up staying at the school very long, which which goes even beyond the the sort of story that I tell in the book. Um, but I mentioned that at the end. So yeah, lots of again, lots of good intentions, but but one of my reflections was that those intentions are not enough. Um, What we really need to do to really understand and improve schools like this is, first of all, understand the influence of of, of the policies that are out of this guy's hands and out of the teacher's hands. And how do we give them more more agency within the school? And two, looking at the way this principal was making sense of things, I sort of did a little sort of, um, you know, informal developmental reflection in terms of like, how was he making sense of things and and, and seeing that he really did not have a post-conventional perspective on his situation. He had a very conventional, very totally bought in, apparently, to the aims and goals of manipulating the test scores. And he didn't really question it or reflect on that in a meaningful way. And for me, in in my personal reflection of understanding him in this school, to me, that was really important um, and something that we want to be aware of because we really want principals to be able to have a critical reflection and, and a sort of metacognition on their situation. Let me talk about another aspect of what he did, which again seemed to be following the SLA ideas and 
ideas that I would agree with. I've done similar things is that he attempted to develop numerous self-organizing groups. He had grade level teams. He had the instruction team. He had the school campus team, et cetera. And in theory, in theory, these were to be self-organizing, decentralized, you know, organizations that had some authority. But the mode that he fell into, unfortunately, was he ended up being the leader of most of these teams. At least that's how I read it. You have a beautiful graphic that shows the various circles for the various teams and their overlaps. And then you have right in the center in about 40-point type, Harold Weatherby. Tell us about that. Yeah, and I I, I think the contrast with the other school is meaningful because they both came in with the same ideas, right? So yeah, they both principals at both schools had these ideas of decentralizing distributing leadership. It's basically was part of their charge. And this was part of the theory of what they were trying to to engage. So yeah, the creation of all these committees and putting teachers in positions where they can be part of these decision-making bodies. And yet at this um, district school, yeah, this principal, Harold Willoughby, he, he, he very much kept control. Like he, and he really, there was a, there was a felt sort of visceral sense being in these meetings that like the buck stopped with him and he was driving everything. And the energy of the teachers was often very deflated and, and even some passive aggressive resistance, you know, and some snarky comments here and there. And overall, he was not able to create the kind of energy where people really bought in and really were aligned with him and really believed in it, partly because he couldn't loosen up those reins. He felt such pressure to perform and he felt such pressure to manipulate these outcomes that he really felt like he had to push, push, push and drive everything. And I was able to see from my perspective, especially in contrast to other schools, that it was really counterproductive. Let me throw an alternative read on this, because actually this reminds me of one of my two turnaround things in the business world. Maybe he had no choice. And you pointed out, and this is critical, and we compare and contrast it with the next example, this will become even clearer. He had no authority over his staff. He couldn't fire anybody. He couldn't bring new people in. He tried to bring some new people in, but there was no budget, et cetera. And maybe his people just weren't up to it. And sometimes that's the case. And I have found trying to do culture change that truthfully, you've got to bring in some new and different people. You don't have to turn over the whole staff, but you need to be able to have your kind of people in the organization to be role models, to you know, be cheerleaders for what's going on, et cetera. And if you can't do that, And if the people's capacity isn't high enough, you might for a time have to do that, have to lead everything yourself. I can literally think of a situation where I ended up having to do that when I made the assessment that the capacity of the people on the ground just wasn't there. Now, they could be led to get there, but there was nobody with leadership capability to do it themselves. Now, in a year, we changed that. We brought in a bunch of new people. That's the advantage of relatively fast-growing private sector company. And a year later, I was out of all of that. But that's an alternative explanation that the nature of the personnel system might have made what he did the right decision. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd say it's a both and there. I, I, I tried to actually highlight the contrast between his school and the other school because the interesting thing was him being at a district school, there were such limits on his hiring and firing people. Um, and I mean, to an absurd degree, you know, where it's like he had a very high percentage of Spanish speaking students and actually found like a Spanish speaking teacher he wanted to hire, but he wasn't able to because of sort of union seniority rules. 
that is definitely a big part of his context and a big part of his uphill battle. Whereas the other school was a Catholic school, private Catholic school. And the principal had many different contextual features, different, not had much more trust because she had worked at the school a really long time. People knew her really well. They believed in her. And ultimately, as soon as she became principal, she fired a bunch of people and hired a bunch of young teachers. And it's pros and cons. It's pros and cons, but that autonomy in general is really important. And it was definitely a huge factor in the difference between the district school and the Catholic school. And it was definitely a factor that was working against him. But I'd say just, again, getting to know him and seeing it up hand, there was both really um, significant contextual challenges that he faced and, and real limits to his autonomy and agency, but also the way that he was operating within that context was limited by my sense of the limits of, of his basic worldview. Hmm. Let's leave it there because, as you say, both and, but I could see being in a situation where that was the least bad strategy, you know, for the time being, until you can get some fresh people in there, you may have to take more leadership role than you want. But if you're not that good at it yourself, then that may not be so optimal. So let's now move on to St. Catherine's School and Helen Matthew, who, as you say, had been there several years as a teacher and then assistant principal for a number of years. And then at the time that you were there, she'd been principal, what, for about four years, something like that? Yeah. Tell that story. You know, what was going on at St. Catherine's? Yeah, it was really interesting to see big differences and also big similarities. So, and, and again, coming in with a very similar um, ideas and intentions and charges as a principal, wanting to create this cultural change, wanting to distribute leadership. But as I said, context so different in terms of people really knew her and believed in her. There was very little resistance from teachers. The collegiality was at a much higher level. And her power was kind of unquestioned. So she could really kind of do whatever she wanted. And the, the, the impact of that isn't just the actual decisions that can be made, but the way that people respond to the relational dynamics, right? Like you don't get the same kind of passive aggressive resistance from people when they know that they kind of have to shape up or get shipped out. So my sense at the Catholic school was, again, older teachers who'd been around a while who she kept on, who were really working hard to change and do things differently than the way they had done them for however many years. And that was really stressful and difficult and created a lot of disequilibrium for the older teachers. And then she was able to hire a handful of younger teachers who had really strong work ethics and were able to kind of come in with some new energy. Um, and you really almost, it's funny because it's like this old Catholic school that's been around for a while, but it had the energy more of a startup company where it's like, you just get the sense that people, except without the money, because people are working really hard for not a lot of money, but they believe in what they're doing. And she created this whole cultural idea of dream big. Um, and you know, everything was dream big. They just referred to it over and over and over again. And it, it, it really became, I mean, it was kind of, cheesy and, and, and corny and, and simple, but people, you know, they seem to actually kind of get behind it and be energized by this thing of like, okay, they're dreaming big and the school's changing and things are going to get better. And this is going to be a great school. Um, and it just had a very different energy to the environment. Yeah. And then as we go back to the same similar bubble chart that you had in the book, she generated even more teams, but rather than being the leader of every single one of them, she seems to have been much more a general behind the scenes and letting the lieutenants and captains run their own operations. Yeah. 
her enactment of the principles of distributed leadership were much more aligned with, I think, the ideals that they were both striving for. And, and she was much better, much more able to really, to really embody um, that vision and those ideals by really empowering her staff and, 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 and really delegating more. And teachers, for the most part, did a good job of stepping up to the plate and really taking on more leadership than they were used to or probably would have asked for. And, and one important connection I try to make there is I, I do sort of sense that there was this overall difference between the two principles, which is kind of what I was referring to before, was it wasn't just contextual differences that influenced their behavior. It was both contextual differences that influenced their behavior and differences of sense-making. And I sensed that even just in the way that she was more critical of her context, she was more critical of standardization. She was more critical of testing. She was just in general more post-conventional and more reflective and metacognitive. That I, I saw that as being very much related to the fact that she was also able to have more epistemic humility in a way and actually experiment more and empower other people more. Yeah, very interesting. And part of it is no doubt personal, right? That that's just who she was. But it's also partially the degrees of freedom that she had within the context of the institutional structure. So again, we get back to this game B theory of individuals and institutions that co-evolve and co-attract each other, right? If you have a certain kind of institutional structure, you'll attract certain kinds of people that will do well in that institutional structure. And that institutional structure can help upgrade the capacity of those people. Then you reinvent the institutional structure as you go, as she clearly did. So thinking this as a co-evolutionary context is really quite helpful. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think it's kind of beautiful to be able to see schools and social systems in that way, uh, co-evolutionary dynamics in all four quadrants and just seeing how things are unfolding through those interrelationships and interactions and being influenced by different levels of complexity of the agents themselves. Yep. And then you had a final section comparing and contrasting the two. I don't want to go through that didactically, but you know, what's the takeaway that one should get from reading these two stories? Hmm. Well, I'd say we've touched on a lot of the of the points that we want to understand, which is the importance of these systemic institutional factors and the downsides of really handcuffing and limiting the agency of school leaders and then that trickling down to limiting the agency of teachers and ultimately students. So really having having that up close documented sort of qualitative sense of how those institutional and policy constraints trickle down and impact the behavior of people in schools is really important. And getting a sense of these sort of cultural, qualitative, um, relational aspects of schools being really important, right? Like the difference in trust and energy and confidence that was more present in the Catholic school than in the district school. Like these are the things that we have to have in mind as policymakers and as people who are thinking about education Right. All, all, there's all of these dynamics at play that really impact the experience of students. And you cannot reduce the complexity of a school to, again, to grades or test scores or any quantified outcomes. Because when you do that, all of the richness of all these other layers of what's happening in these schools is, is, is lost. Indeed. I think that's good. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now let's turn to our last topic, which is the idea of development, psychological development, or even as it's sometimes called adult psychological development. 
Let's start from there and then let's move towards integral theory in a little bit more detail, as much as we can do in 15 minutes. All right. Yeah, I mean, in general, it's sort of funny that it doesn't go without saying that in order to understand education and the educational process, we have to understand the developmental trajectory that human beings are on in the first place, right? I mean, like our whole understanding of what education is about and what our goals are sort of presuppose an understanding of what our potentials and capacities are for growth and learning and development. So, you know, and and again, this is one of the deep problems of what has become normalized over the past sort of 20, 30 years, especially, is that a lot of the logic and ways of thinking about educational outcomes have really been determined largely by bureaucratic and efficiency-oriented um, machinations of like the educational bureaucracy itself and of the testing industry, actually, and not of not being informed deeply by the learning sciences and informed deeply about how human beings grow and develop. So it's relevant in the context of understanding children. And then it's also relevant in terms of understanding teachers and school leaders. Again, for me, there's this sort of fractal way of looking at it in terms of like children, teachers, and administrators. And in all these levels, what you ultimately have are human beings who are growing and learning and developing or not, right? So understanding sort of what's possible and what the trajectory is and what that spectrum of cognition and consciousness and skill and capacity looks like and having as rich as possible of an understanding of that terrain, that developmental terrain is of the utmost importance, right? And it's a very complex terrain. There's so many ways to cut the pie in terms of how we make sense of even, you know, the development of one individual. But what I try to do in the book is to provide some orienting generalizations, drawing on, you know, some pretty simple theories like Robert Keegan. Um, and then I bring in Torbert's theories, which is a little bit more fine grained. Um, and it fits within this integral frame where everything's evolving and growing and developing. So that's sort of the intro to the idea of development. I'm not sure where you want to go with that. Yeah, why don't you start by talking a little bit about Keegan's levels of development and why do we think there might actually be levels that you actually have to go from one to the other, which is not necessarily an intuitively obvious idea. Yeah, so part of the part of the fundamental thinking here is that there are these developmental stages and that you know you kind of go through them in some sense sequentially. They are dialectical or hierarchical, so it's very similar to, for instance, I know you're familiar with the model of hierarchical complexity. So that's just one of many models. So there's, you know, there's many different kinds of developmental models. Some are domain specific, um, which are really looking at specific skills and capacities that develop dialectically and hierarchically. And then there's more global theory. So Keegan's thinking is more of a global way of really looking at the development of the self and thinking of moving through the general stages of being sort of a conventional or socialized. So having a socialized mind is being really oriented toward the group, kind of taking on the norms and assumptions and ways of being of, of whatever your group is. And then moving into a more self-authoring phase of life where you're able to really, you know, you, you start to get more individuated from your group. You're thinking from yourself. You're cultivating your sense of rationality. Um, and then you can grow beyond that into a more um, self-transforming self where you're really starting to actually get post-conventional and really reflect on the norms of, of, of your group in a way where you're actually able to push the boundaries of thought and be creative and, and sort of those experiments and novelty 
an epistemic humility that we were talking about. It's sort of like that in some ways presupposes a capacity to be metacognitive and reflective on the thought process itself and to engage in not just not just single loop learning, right, which is actually operating within whatever structure of goals and success and taking that as a given and then trying to be successful within that realm. That would be single loop learning, right? Double loop learning would be actually reflecting on those goals and those presuppositions themselves, right? And actually thinking about how do I learn how to actually up-level even the ways that I'm thinking about what success is all about, right? And then triple loop learning is actually doing that, but also in the moment being metacognitive and actually being aware of how you are reacting to things, how you're responding to things in the moment, how you're actually using theories and sort of conceptual architectures to make sense of your world. So there's all these layers of complexity that we can bring to our metacognition. And in general, there's a lot of research by a lot of developmental psychologists that overlap in a lot of meaningful ways. And it's tricky to unpack because a lot of them, because they are domain specific, they're actually looking at different capacities and different skills. Um, But when you sort of take a step back and take a meta view on developmental psychology as a field, you can see that there are these pretty broad general kinds of agreement where you can see people moving through these stages in different ways. Yeah. And in fact, one of the things you quote is there are four interrelated research-based claims. Development is a specific describable and detectable phenomena. Development has a robust scientific foundation. Development can be encouraged and fostered through specific practices. And development has organizational, practical, actionable value. Pretty strong claims. Let's skip over the scientific foundation, as you alluded to some of that. Let's actually go back and say, what is specific, describable, and detectable phenomena? Mm, Yeah. So I think what's being referenced there is actually simply what we are observing in individuals' behavior in a specific context that is looking at a specific thing, right? So there are many different kinds of developmental assessments, and they're all going to be really drawing upon and trying to understand the very specific describable phenomena that people are manifesting and then using um, a sort of progression uh, of of the way that people's uh, behavior and skills develop over time to sort of understand what the spectrum of capacity is, right? So, and, and one thing that's interesting about thinking developmentally is there's a way in which the individual, like any individual human is so irreducibly complex that the danger of a lot of developmental thinking is that we reduce the complexity of the individual to a label, like are they an abstract thinker or formal or systematic or metasystematic, right? And a lot of the value of developmental thinking is actually seeing patterns and trends across groups and across multiple kinds of assessments. So we don't want to fall into the trap of trying to pigeonhole any individual and say, oh, well, your behavior or your output on this assessment, or, you know, your answer to this question, you know, that means you're at this level, and then we're putting you in that box. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard not to do that. But you can still look at the concrete actual behaviors of people and the specific answers that people give to questions. And we can see patterns form. And we can see that those patterns have different levels of complexity to them, right? And that, that that's sort of the like the background architecture of something like the model of hierarchical complexity 
or Keegan's model or, you know, um, like Kurt Fisher was a developmental theorist, you know, at Harvard who had a huge influence on, on like, like you mentioned, Theo Dawson and Zach and Lectica and, and looking, you know, very, very specifically in a very fine grained and fine tuned ways based on particular assessments, you know, how do we understand the sort of dialectal, the dialectical progressions that we see in people's ability to respond and behave and make sense? And, and what are the differences in complexity that people manifest in those responses and behaviors? Yeah, that's a very good point that this, unfortunately, so many of these pop versions of this stuff want to pigeonhole people. One of my pet peeves is this stuff called spiral dynamics with these color codes. In fact, I have a funny mocking meme that I created for it that has the spiral dynamics turned into a arch, a rainbow. And at the top, I have orange and I have to the left going back down towards blue and red, I say more ignorant. And then I have to the right going up from orange to green to teal to purple or whatever the fuck it is. I say more goofy and that orange is the top, God damn it, just to make fun of the whole concept. And I think it's really dangerous for people to fall into that simplistic thinking because I proudly call myself an orange man, goddammit. On the other hand, I rate level 14 in hierarchical complexity, right? And I'm full of all kinds of perspectives that go all across that color spectrum. And so I go, what a crock of shit. <laughs> so maybe sort of useful in a very, very, very broad brush, but don't expect to have actual people fit nicely into these buckets. Yeah, it is. It's really dangerous. And it's one of the sort of catch-22s of doing this work because the caveats that you mentioned are really important. The dangers of it are really present. And yet, you know, there is also this sense of developmental blindness, which is something that, that, that Hansi Freinach refers to in the Listening Society, which I think is really true. And his basic argument is, look, if we act as though there is not development, if we act as though there are not dialectical and hierarchical differences between different perspectives, both within an individual's lifespan and across groups and across individuals, then we're just missing a huge part of reality, right? And I tr I'm trying in the book to be really delicate about this. And I actually end the book, you know, really, really reflecting on that and how the theories that we develop to describe that emergent territory of our growth continue to change and grow over time. And, you know, a, a map is never the territory, but it's no less crucial when navigating difficult terrain. You know, like we really need maps to understand what's going on. I try to include all those caveats in the book and yet still describe these strains in ways that are meaningful and helpful, which is, which is hard to do. Yep. And we'll take a final turn towards that in just a second. I'll mention Hansi Freinach. He's been on the show three times. I love his work. And he has a four-dimensional model as well, as you know. And that feels to me about the right level of richness. You, know, you can be this in this dimension, that in that dimension, this in this dimension, this in the other. And while there may be some correlation, it doesn't have to be anywhere near 1.0. And so people can develop at different levels in these different dimensions, which strikes me as much more realistic than these single color code kinds of deals, whether the spiral one or my sarcastic rainbow one. <laughs> let's go into the integral. We alluded to it just a little bit, but let's go more detailed into the integral four-part model, which, as I say, I have found actually useful. I now try to make myself look at a complex situation from all four quadrants. I mean, at a very naive level, you can call it the I quadrant, the it quadrant, the we and the its quadrant. Why don't you go from there and tell us more, and then let's get to the eight zones. 
Yeah. So I kind of mentioned at the outset, I think it is really helpful to see these interior and exterior and individual and collective. And, and as we've kind of, we've sort of recursively been reflecting on this throughout this conversation in terms of just like even looking at something like a school and seeing in some ways the beauty and the elegance and the sophistication and the complexity of how these things interrelate, right? Like how does the perspective and sense-making of the principal influence the culture? And then how does that culture influence the thinking of the individual students and teachers? And then how is that influenced by the, the building and the technology and the policies that are in place, right? And how does all that like sort of tetra arise with individual behaviors that are manifesting? So all these things are always embedded. Um, and, you know, integral theory goes into a pretty, I think, well-developed look historically, right? Because it's, it's also about life emerging and developing in all four ways. So, I, you know, I, I think, which we won't have time to get into, but I think some of the value of integral theory is really in our understanding of history and kind of how we got to where we are in terms of the complexity, like right now, the sort of the leading edge of where we're at in our overall evolution and the complexity of our individual capacity for perspective taking and consciousness and self-reflection and metacognition. Like what is the process that brought that about? What is the process that brought about the evolution of technology and civilization, right? From like foraging tribes to empire to cities and not to the digital sort of globalized world that we're in. Um, and culturally, like what are the, what are the cultural codes that have emerged over time? And this is something that Hanzi also unpacks well and making this distinction between individual complexity and cultural code and how they are independent, but also interdependent and related, but you can't collapse one to the other. And you can definitely have sort of dialectical relationships in terms of how you understand different cultural codes, but you can have individuals of different sort of um, cognitive complexity interpreting those codes in different ways. So there's a lot of terrain to unpack for people who aren't familiar with it. I definitely recommend, as we've mentioned, Hansi's books and, and also um, really any of Ken Wilber's books in terms of getting a lay of the land for these, for these basic concepts. Yeah, I found Ken Wilber's book, A Brief History of Everything, quite accessible and quite understandable, though Rob Smith warned me it was a little obsolete. But Yeah, well, that's the thing about these theories. They just keep updating and refining and, and getting more more advanced. And actually, Rob Smith has some good short ebooks that I think are good resources as well. All right. Well, let's wrap it there because you're right. There's no time to go into this in any more detail. We've reached our 90 minutes, which is about as far as my old and feeble brain can handle. So I'd like to thank you, Brad. What a wonderful conversation about three of my favorite topics, complexity, education, and leadership. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, we just scratched the surface, but it was it was also a, a deep dive at the same time. And it's very rich terrain. And there's just so much to understand in terms of humans and learning and schools and education. So thanks for the opportunity to, to unpack some of it together. Yeah, and before we go, give us the title of your book again. And as always, the link to the book will be on our episode page at jimrutshow.com. Yeah, thanks. It's Understanding Educational Complexity integrating practices and perspectives for 21st century leadership. Thanks, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.